You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. David Jeremiah, in his excellent book, um, Where Do We Go From Here? Just out, he talks about coming across this article in the Business Insider, which is a website for business people. And uh, there was an article that was dealing with LeBron James, of all people, talking about the fact that LeBron James spends $1.5 million a year on his body. Now, I just stopped and I thought about that and how much hair products I use. And I, I, I asked myself, if I had a million and a half dollars that I had to spend, what would you spend it on? Uh, that's a lot of money to spend just on yourself. And you say, well, what does he do? Well, when he was in Miami with the Miami Heat, he had a gym built in his house to the exact specifications. It mirrored exactly the gym that they had down uh, at the arena where the Miami Heat would go to train. So when he moved back to Cleveland, he did the same thing. He built an exact replica of the gym where the Cavaliers go to practice. So he's got that. He not only has that, he has a cryo chamber that operates off of liquid nitrogen, which is like, and for some reason, athletes, and this is a world-class athlete, LeBron James, loves to get down into ice water. I don't know what it does other than make you cold, but he likes to do that. And so he's got a cryo chamber there. He not only has that, he has a hyperbaric chamber as well which he gets in because it pushes oxygen. It enriches the oxygen throughout your body. One of the things that does is it helps you heal quickly. So here's a guy who spends all this money on this stuff. He hires the best trainers in the world to come work with him. He not only that, uh, does that, hires the best trainers, he hires the best physical therapist to come and to zero in on certain muscles uh, that they will work and that they will, you know, so he can define that muscle to do what he wants that muscle to do, I guess. He hires the best chefs in the world. Uh, he doesn't eat anything but organic food. And he eats stuff that I'd never touch. But he hires the best chefs in the world to come in. And he's on a very specific, very, very organic, very healthy uh, diet. None of which can taste good at all. I am certain of that. Uh, and then he's got these compression clothes. He spent tons of money on all these compression garments that he puts on before he ever gets on a jet and flies off to a basketball game somewhere. So here's a guy that spends a million and a half dollars a year on stuff like that for his body. Now, I want you to listen to what David Jeremiah said. David Jeremiah said, if a basketball player is that concerned about taking care of his body, shouldn't you and I be diligent to take care of our souls. Now I'll go a step beyond that. If LeBron James spends a million and a half dollars a year taking care of his body, shouldn't you and I do a little more than what we do in ensuring that we are taking care of the local body we call Valleydale Church? 
Now, that's exactly what Jude is talking about. He's talking about personally, but he's also talking about corporately. He's writing not just to individuals. He's writing to churches. And in this little epistle, and I hope you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to open it with me this morning to verse 17 of Jude. There's only one chapter, uh, just one chapter. That's why I don't say chapter whatever. It's just chapter 1 and verse 17. That's what he's going to talk about. And I want you to notice what happens here. There is a major shift in, um, in this little epistle. Now, all this time, he introduces this epistle, and he goes straight to the issue, and that is in verse 4, there are certain persons who have crept in unnoticed. And he begins to talk about these people who've come into the church who are there doing everything they can to get the church off its mission and to mislead individual Christians into what is their own personal agenda. Now, that's what they're doing. I've got a personal agenda. I want you to be off on that. And he says, these certain persons have crept in. Now, watch, watch this. In the same verse, verse 4, uh, he calls them ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Now, you go to verse 8, and in verse 8, he says, these men. And I've told you, anthropoi is generic. It's men or women. It's not just men, but men or women. Verse 10, these men talking about the same people. Verse 12, look at this. These men, right there, you come down to uh, verse 14, these men, and then in verse 15, he calls them ungodly. He called them ungodly back over here in verse 4 as well. Ungodly persons. Here he calls them ungodly again, and their ungodly deeds, which they've done in an ungodly way, and they're nothing but ungodly sinners. And then in verse 16, he just simply says, these. Now, I did that for a reason because I want you to see something. I'm going to show you how, the, how, how this epistle turned. By the way, this is a sermon and it's to be preached all at one time. Uh, this is the sixth message that I've preached out of this. Uh, but Jude intended this to be just preached all the way through, the 25 verses. But listen to what he does. He's talked about these men, these men, these men, these men. Now, verse 17, look at what he does. Here comes the conjunction and the personal pronoun. But you. But you, so you know there is a shift. Now he turns from these men to now he's going to make it specific to you individually and to the church, and he's going to do that again in verse 20. Look at that. Here it is again. But you. So he's got something he wants to say to the church. So he's been talking about the apostates even though he started out. Now look, talking about the called. Do you see that in verse uh, 1 where he uses the definite article, the called? Do you see it right there in the middle of verse 1? The called. Kletos is the word in the Greek. And it means to call. Now, it's not just a generic, hey, somebody, or hey, you, or hey, anybody. It is a very specific, very personal call. And if you look this up in Reinecker, Reinecker will tell you, or if you look it up in any good uh, language dictionary on the Greek, it will tell you it is an invitation. And the whole concept is this. You are the called. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are called. 
Uh, the only way you came to Jesus Christ is that you were called. The Holy Spirit called you. Jesus called you. God called you. It's an invitation. That's how Reinecker uses it. He says this is an invitation. It's an invitation to come to salvation. And so he uses this word, the called right here, to speak of the fact that we are saved. Sometimes we'll even do that ourselves. Sometimes as a pastor, instead of saying, those of you that are saved, I'll say, those of you that have been called. So it's the same concept, and he comes down now in verse 3, and he says this, this is our common salvation. He said, I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation. So we're all called, and we all share a common salvation. In other words, you didn't get saved any other way but through Jesus Christ, and that's the way we all got saved. No other way but through Jesus Christ. Then he comes and he says, okay, you understand, I'm talking to those of you that are saved, you're called, and we have this common salvation. I'm telling you, I'm calling you to contend for, this, for the faith. You are to contend for the call, contend for the gospel, contend for the church, contend for what we have been called to do. Now, that's what Jude is beginning to do in verse 17. And he's going to give us two things that, need, uh, that we need to hear, especially in our day. What was going on was this. There were those, there was pressure from outside the church. We just read, we just preached through 1 Peter, all the persecution that was happening. But, but Jude is very concerned, and the New Testament is very, the New Testament is less concerned than out, uh, of outside persecution than inside corruption. And so Jude comes and he says, the problem here is not all the outside persecution. That's not going to kill the church. What will kill the church is inside corruption. False teachers. People who've gotten away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who've gotten away from the word of God. People who've gotten away from uh, their own personal faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what was happening. You had so many people that were drifting off away to be part of the culture. Do you remember? There's a young guy in the New Testament. You read about him the last time in uh, 2 Timothy uh, when uh, Paul writes and he says, Demas has left me. He's mentioned in the Colossians uh, epistle, in the epistle to the Colossians. He's mentioned in the little letter to Philemon. Uh, but then Paul comes and he says, Right at the end of his life, he says, Demas has left me having loved this present world. There are a lot of people in the church who are more interested in going with the culture than in contending for the gospel in the face of the culture. And that's what Jude is dealing with, and that's where we are in the church today. In fact, I want you to listen to a guy by the name of Ron Sider. Ron Sider's a Mennonite, but he's a theologian. I was introduced to him when I was uh, a freshman in college. But I want you to listen to what he's saying right here. Scandalous behavior is rapidly destroying American Christianity. By their daily activity, most Christians regularly commit treason. Now, okay, don't bow up yet. Just listen to the guy. Listen to what he says. By their daily activity, most Christians regularly commit treason. 
With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord, but with their actions, they demonstrate allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. Now, can anybody stand up and argue against Ron Sider? No, we don't like it, do we? That's not going to be, you're not going to talk about this around the kitchen table today because we don't like that. But every single one of us deep in our hearts know that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Erwin Lutzer in a great book called The Church in Babylon says this, a church that has assimilated the world cannot be a vibrant witness to that world. We need to hear that on the eve of missions week. So I'm going to read it again. A church that has assimilated the world. We've brought the world and the culture in. Come on in. We want to embrace what you're doing. And we do that. We run after the culture. I won't say it. A church that has assimilated the world cannot be a vibrant witness to that world to adopt prevailing culture values hardly gives the world a reason to believe that we are a viable alternative to lives of brokenness, greed, and addiction. When you look at this broken world and you go and you try to be just like them, why should they ever listen to your gospel about Jesus Christ? They say, you're just like me. You're no better than me. You don't ever go to church either. You're in and out. You're on and off. You're hot. You're cold. You're up. You're down. You look just like me. <laughs> your, your marriage is no better than my marriage. Your, your commitment to finances no better than my commitment to finances. You love the things of life just like I love the things of life. You're more caught up in the culture than the culture's caught up in the culture. That's what Jude is talking about. And he comes and he says to us, beginning in verse 17, you are called to contend for the call, salvation. Now, let me show you two things that he's saying to us. He comes and he says, I'm going to remind you. That's what he begins to say right here in verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember. He says, I'm going to call you to remember Number one, you remember to be spiritually guarded. Now, let me give you that again. To be spiritually guarded. That's what he's saying in 17, 18, and 19. But you, beloved, ought to remember. Be able to call to your mind. In fact, if you look back just a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says this. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. I don't have a new gospel to give you this morning. I don't have some other Jesus to preach to you. I don't have some other means of salvation. All I do Sunday after Sunday is come back to this word and remind you it's all Jesus. And anybody who walks in here and gives you something different, I hope you rise up as a congregation and run him out the front door. That's what it, Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus back in, in Acts. He's saying, I know when I depart, savage wolves are going to come in. I'm staring down sometime out in the future, not as soon as some of you want it. I'm going to retire one day if I don't die first. And I don't want savage wolves to come in among the people of God. 
So I'm reminding you, just as Peter did, and he comes and he says this, there are mockers who will come in among you. Look, I am reminding you the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord. What were they? That they were saying to you in the last times, there will be mockers. Now, let me tell you, that little word mockers is oftentimes translated scoffers. You'll find it a lot of times in the Old Testament, wisdom literature. It's used a lot in wisdom literature, in um, Proverbs, in uh, Ecclesiastes, parts of Job, in uh, parts of the Psalms that are wisdom literature. In fact, I'm going to read to you Psalm 1. I want you just to listen to how the entire book of the Psalter begins In Psalm 1 and verse 1, he says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, mockers. Now, who are these people? They mock about everything. If you go back to Jude, he says this, There will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. He says what they do is this, they laugh, they mock, they make fun of, they talk down to, they treat as ridiculous the things of God, the Word of God. Let me give you a good illustration of our day, and it is the whole issue of creation. Well, listen, don't you know that Genesis 1 and 2 is just a song, it's just Hebrew poetry. That's not to be taken seriously. That's not to be taken uh, in any way, uh, literally. You, You don't believe in all of that. Yes, I do. I not only believe God created in six days, I wonder why it took him six days to do it. He said, well, it took 60 billion years. I've got a great Greek word for that. I don't believe it. I, I, I think I'm fairly well educated. I come from a bunch of rednecks in South Carolina, but I did get an education. I believe Genesis 1 and 2. I take it literally. They scoff about the second coming. That's what Peter's going to say. I'm going to read that to you in just a moment. They scoff about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's not coming. Everything's just like it's always been. Well, number one, that's surely not true. But number two, he is coming again. This coming Friday night, I'm preaching right out of Naples, Florida in a pastor church conference down there. I think I'm going to preach on the, on the rapture of the church just to irritate young preachers because they don't preach on it anymore. I just want to mess with their mind. And I'm flying in Friday and I fly out at 7 o'clock Saturday morning so they won't be able to catch up with me to disagree with me on the thing. So they'll just have to get me on Twitter Social media somewhere. Anyway, listen, they scoff about the second coming. You're going to see that in just a moment. He's not coming back. This has been going on for 2,000 years. Well, number one, we're 2,000 years closer to it now than we were then. They scoff and they laugh about the virgin birth. Well, you know you don't believe that. That's not science. Neither is half this mess coming out of Washington. (laughs) Believe science? Not on, no, no. I'll I'll take the word of God. Uh, uh, So anyway, let me get on here. Y'all, why do y'all get me off on stuff? (laughs) Listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 3. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. 
Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Just pick it up. 1 Thessalonians 5, just a few pages back. Verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. You see what Russia said this morning? Oh, America's just going overboard. Did y'all see that? We only got 190,000 troops down there on the border. Y'all just are just making a whole lot out of nothing. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's what they're going to say. Peace and safety. We're not going to do anything. You know when Russia's going to do something? When they tell you they're not. Y'all just sit there, all right? Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child. And they'll not escape, but you, brethren, are not left in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. We don't walk in darkness. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night, nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep. Be awake. Be awake. I didn't say woke. I said be awake. One is political, the other is spiritual. Be awake. Wake up. Don't sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. We got our eyes out. We have our eyes out for the spiritual, not the political. He says, open your eyes and see. Listen, John comes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Just as you've heard the Antichrist is coming, now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know this is the last hour. Jesus comes in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now there you are. You go from Peter to Paul to John to Jesus, now to Jude. And he comes and he says, I'm reminding you of what has been said by all of these. And what has been said is this, do not be surprised when into your church slips false teachers. Don't be surprised at that. Don't be shocked at that. He says, you ought to expect it. Do you remember back, I, I thought about this this morning, back in Mark chapter 1. I started last year on Monday mornings on the devotional, going through the gospel of Mark, which has been fascinating for me. And as I came to the first miracle of Jesus, it, it's there in Mark chapter 1. Do you know what it is? <laughs> it, it's a demoniac who is in the synagogue when Jesus is teaching and the man who is full of demons stands up and says, we don't want to hear that stuff. That's Jesus teaching. Not some Yahoo like your pastor. We're talking Jesus teaching in the synagogue and a man with demons there, which tells me this, Satan is always in the church. Shouldn't surprise you. You should not be shocked at that. And you say, Pastor, why are you so adamant about that? Is something going on in this church? No, not that I know of, which is the best time in the world to warn you. Let me tell you something, church. The first two things I had to deal with when I came here um, were, they were so out of the book of Jude, it's not even funny. The elders... Uh, help me. Thank the Lord for them. Thank the Lord we have good godly elders. 
We had two things we had to deal with. The first one was somebody in the church who wanted to lead off a group into some sexual activities that was just absolutely absurd. And we just said, absolutely, no, you're not going to do that here. And the second one was somebody who had the most confused, heretical theology, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of something else and some of this sprinkled in on the side. And we had to go to that person repeatedly and say, you can't talk about this. We need to talk to you. But he would not listen. So eventually we had to say, you've got to go. You cannot do that here. We're not going to laugh. You ought to be thankful you've got a church that's got an elder body that says we are here to protect the word of God among the people of God. Yes, you ought to clap. You ought to be thankful for it. Because given just a little bit of time, I can assure you that person would have gathered a little group around them and we'd have had a mess. So he comes and he says this. You'd better be spiritually guarded. You'd better guard yourself. I want to read one more passage out of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to listen to what he says in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Before anything starts like that at Valleydale, I want you to know beforehand, be on your guard. So that you're not carried away by the era of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. I'm standing here flat-footed and I'm telling you, you've been warned. You've been warned. You say, do you expect that to happen? I just preached a whole point on that. <laughs> you should expect it to happen. You should not be surprised. Do you go hunting for it? Do you look for witches behind every bush? No. But I am spiritually guarded so that I don't fall into error. Jesus said in the last days, there will be such an intensive pressure of false doctrine that even the elect stands to be led astray. You say, you're serious. You, it's a heart attack. Number two, let me give you the second thing, and it's this. You need to be reminded to remain spiritually guided. Spiritually guarded, spiritually guided. Now, listen to what he says when he comes to verse 20. But you. Now, do you see those two little words right there? But you. That is a reflexive pronoun. I spent an hour this morning early that I did not have really running down a reflexive pronoun in the Greek. Now, let me tell you what a reflect. Y'all sit up and act like you're interested now because I, I, I couldn't get this off my mind. Here, here's the word. A reflexive pronoun is this, that the action goes back to the, to the subject. So look at verse 20. But you, that's the subject. Building, that's the action. So the action in a reflexive pronoun now points back to the subject. And he says, this is why he says, but you. Building yourselves up. You are responsible for this. You honestly are responsible for your own spiritual life. I 
I can't force feed you. All I can do is put this out in front of you, and you can sit there and debate it and argue it and brush it aside. Listen, I can't force feed. God's not going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold me accountable for what I preach. He's not going to hold me accountable for what you do with it. You know, I can't eat the Word of God for you, and it benefit you. Um, Carson came up with six boxes of fresh, hot, Krispy Kreme donuts this morning. Waved them all up in my face. Said, oh, don't you want these? I said, you're fired. No, and, uh, and I said, yeah, I want one. I want, all, I want every one of them is what I want. Uh, now, I could have eaten all of those. I guarantee you I could have eaten at least half of those donuts he had this morning. I could have done it once I'd have been sick, but I'd have been happy. Um, happily sick. But my eating that would have done, it would have done nothing for the teenagers this morning. I can't eat food for you. What I try to do is to stand up here and be faithful to the word of God and serve it up to you. And what he's telling you right here is you are responsible. You are responsible for yourself for four things. In this whole issue of being spiritually guided, number one, look at this, building yourselves up. Now that word building up there carries a concept that it is being built on something solid. If you begin to run down the word and look up the word and do a little bit of study on this, it is building on something that is already existing. One of, the, one of the illustrations is it goes back to the Hebrews uh, when they come back out of Babylonian captivity and they're going to rebuild the temple of God. What they do is this, they start rebuilding it on Solomon's foundation, on the foundation of Solomon's temple. So the whole concept is, is while you're building yourself up, you build on a certain foundation. What's the foundation? For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you're building your life on anything else, let me tell you, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And so he comes and he says, you build on that certain foundation. But now listen, he says, you're building yourself up on your most holy faith. Now, he's already referenced this back in verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. When he says you're building yourself up on your most holy faith, he's talking about sound biblical doctrine. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says there is coming a day when they will not endure sound doctrine. If you're going to be spiritually guided, if you're going to grow spiritually, let me tell you something. You've got to get into the Word of God, and you've got to build this into your life while you build your life on Jesus Christ. Now, look at the second thing, and the second thing is this. It's praying. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's the end of verse 20. And you say, well, what does he mean by that? He means that you're not only to be in the Word of God, but you're also to spend time in prayer. So every morning when you follow along in the Bible reading, as uh, Kirkwood did just a few minutes ago, you just don't spend time in the Word and get up and leave. You spend time in prayer. Pray over that Word. Pray before you open the Word. Read the Word. And then pray after you've read the Word. And when he says pray in the Holy Spirit here, he's not talking about something that's, that's uh, 
He's not talking about some private, personal prayer. It's not what he's talking about, a personal prayer language. He's talking about what is in the inner man. That's what Paul refers to. He says, I want you to be strengthened in the inner man. Who's in the inner man if you're a believer? The Holy Spirit. So here he's saying, listen, through the word and through prayer, you gain strength. Through the word and prayer, you gain maturity. You gain stability. You gain an assurance because the assurance is not in me. I have no assurance in me, but I do have assurance in Jesus Christ and in God's word. So he comes now to the third thing, and the third thing is this. Keep yourself. Now, let me, let me show you something interesting here. He does this, I think, personally, I think he does this to get your attention. He's given you two participles, building and praying, and now he comes to an imperative. The imperative is a command. Keep yourselves. Now, that's a command. He's saying here, he's saying, let me give you some instruction. You're building yourselves up on your most holy faith. You're praying in the Holy, in the holy Spirit. Now, here comes the command. You keep yourself in the love of God. Why? Because if I go back to verse 6, it says this, and angels who did not keep. I look at those Israelites, those Hebrews who came out of Egypt, they didn't keep it either. I look down here at Sodom and Gomorrah, and I, listen, they didn't keep it for sure. I come over to verse 11, Cain didn't keep it, Balaam didn't keep it, Korah didn't keep it. They all heard the truth, but they didn't keep it. He says, you keep yourself in the love of God. Now, what does he mean by that? I think by that, he means this. Uh, you are obedient to Jesus Christ. I'm keeping myself in the love of God. I'm keeping myself invested. I'm keeping myself, listen, I'm keeping myself active in the body of Christ, in the word of God, in a prayer life. I'm keeping myself active and attached to the things that God loves. Let me give you the fourth thing, and the fourth thing is this. He comes now, and he switches back to yet another participle, and he says this, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, he's already talked about mercy once. He says, I'm talking to the called who are beloved in God. This is, this is in verse 1. Uh, God the Father and, uh, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That whole thing of waiting anxiously means looking expectantly. For what? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking expectantly. And while I'm looking expectantly for the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm experiencing the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because I'm not sinlessly perfect yet. I've still got issues in my life that I need to come to Jesus Christ and get right in my life. There's still some areas in my life that need to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are things in my life uh, that I just simply need the mercy of Jesus Christ. He's coming back one day, and when he comes back, listen, let me tell you, I'll never know what it is to be tempted by sin again. 
I'll never be hounded. I'll never be hunted. I'll never be followed by my own personal sins. I will live in the light of the risen lamb. But until then, when I do sin, I experience the mercy of God. That's good stuff. Say amen right there. We experience his mercy in a world that is desperate for the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of Christ that they are abandoning. We are running anxiously toward it as the culture goes away from it. Do y'all see that? Now, when you come to this church, let me, let me just, let me just close it out and say this. Now I'm coming next week to these next few verses and, um, we'll finish on that Sunday of mission conference, talking about snatching them out of hell, out of the fire. I want, you to, I want you to understand that what I'm doing is this. Through this little book right here that I think may be the most, may be the most needed book to be preached in the American church today. Because so many of us are running after so many things in this culture that we have no time for God anymore. We'll walk out of here today, and it's the last we'll think about him until next Sunday morning. I want you to be, I want you to be prepared. I want you to be guarded. I want you to be guided by the Holy Spirit of God. If there's a man or a woman or a young person in this place who would come to the place to where they would honestly say, I'm going to follow this. I'm not going to go with the culture. I'm not going to go with society. I'm not going to go with what is popular in our day, what is politically correct or anything. I am not going to go with that. I'm going to follow what has been told me in the word of God. I am going to be spiritually guarded and I'm going to be spiritually guided. And what I'm going to do is I am going to build myself up in the word of God. I am going to be praying in the Holy Spirit I'm going to keep myself in obedience to, the, to God and to the things that God loves, and I am going to wait anxiously for the coming of Christ. You'll see a man or a woman who will go back to that family, and they'll make a difference in their family. You'll see that family, if that family comes to Valleydale Church, you'll see that family begin to impact Valleydale Church in a very good way. Because if we'll get committed to doing what is said right here in this little book, and especially this morning, that we're going to spiritually guard ourselves, and this is the guardrails right here, and that we're going to be spiritually guided, we're, listen, let me tell you, if that happens, we'll impact our family. We'll impact our children. We'll impact the next generation. Did y'all see about, did y'all read the article this morning early about Madoff's family? How many people have died in his family since he died? A man out for what? One thing, money. Built billions out of people. Why? For his own self. He had a pair of bedroom slippers. Did y'all see what those things sold for? Tens of thousands of bedroom slippers. And Debbie's dog would chew the fool thing up. <laughs> thousands of dollars. The horror that happened. You want to impact your family? Live for Jesus Christ. Let it be seen. You'll impact the church. 
You have a family. You have a man that does that in front of his family. He'll impact his family. Listen, that family will impact the church. That church will impact the community. The community will impact the city. The city will impact then the state. The state will impact the nation. Now you want to talk about world missions. That's the way you impact the world. Live for Christ. Be consumed with it. Let it be your passion. As much as you like all the things in this culture, never let the culture touch or even get close to your love for Jesus Christ. You be the one that is the light. I don't know if you've ever read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I read it 50 years ago, I guess. But uh, Franklin was a fascinating, fascinating man, complex, fascinating, interesting guy, lived in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia at one time was the capital of, uh, of the colonies, became the capital of the country. And um, there was a problem. Uh, Franklin writes about the problem in Philadelphia. He says, at night when the sun goes down, it's so dark on the streets of Philadelphia that people are injured just walking down the street, walking down a sidewalk. He said there are holes, there are potholes, there are mud holes, uh, there are rocks that are out of place, stones that are out of place that have been laid. People fall over these. They injure themselves. But he was most concerned about the rising crime. And he talked about the rising crime in the streets of Philadelphia after the sun goes down that people are accosted and attacked and robbed and held up and everything else. And he says it's just too dangerous to walk when the sun goes down in the city of Philadelphia. And so he goes to the city, and the city pays him no attention, which is hard for me to understand. We're talking about Benjamin Franklin, and Franklin comes down, and he comes down, and he comes down. He's constantly bringing this up before the city fathers, and they do absolutely nothing. So Franklin goes home, and on one particular day, he's so fed up with it, he walks out in his front yard, and he posts He puts up a post right there at the end of his yard, right there at the walkway in the street. And that night, he takes a kerosene lantern, and he goes up, and he hangs the kerosene lantern out on that post. Now, let me tell you how odd this is, is that the people up and down the street where Franklin lived came out that night because they saw a light glowing out there. They came out, and they all walked up to that post with that kerosene lamp, and they stood there under the glow of Franklin's lamp. And they talked about how unique, how mar- nobody had ever thought of this before. You know what happens the very next night? Somebody else does it. The night after that, somebody else does it. And the night after that, somebody else does it. Until they say that in a short period, the city of Philadelphia at night was aglow. All it would take, all it would take is one man in this church to stand up and say, I will commit myself to this. That I will be the one who will not walk with the culture, but under the authority of God's word and in Jesus Christ and his strength, I will be filled with his spirit and I will walk against the culture and I will contend for the faith. All it would take is one teenager, just one teenager who would look at all the other teenagers and say, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. If none of you ever invite me to a party, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. All it would take would be one senior couple. 
All it would take would be one young man, 30 years of age, 35, 40 years of age, to stand up and say, no matter what the cost, I will stand and contend for the faith. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.